This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War by Helen Lackner. The democratic promise of the 2011 Arab Spring has unraveled in Yemen, triggering a disastrous crisis of civil war, famine, militarization, and governmental collapse, with serious implications for the future of the region. Yet as political researcher Helen Lackner argues, the catastrophe does not have to continue, and we can hope for and build a different future in Yemen. Fueled by Arab and Western intervention, the civil war has quickly escalated, resulting in thousands killed and millions close to starvation. Suffering from a collapsed economy, the people of Yemen face a desperate choice between the Houthi rebels on the one side and the internationally recognized government propped up by the Saudi-led coalition and Western arms on the other. In this invaluable analysis, Helen Lackner uncovers the roots of the social and political conflicts that threaten the very survival of the state and the Yemeni people. Importantly, she argues that we must understand the roots of the current crisis so that we can hope for a different future for Yemen and for the Middle East, with a preface exploring the U.S.'s central role in the crisis. Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, by Helen Lackner, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. I'm by no means a Mueller report skeptic in the sense that I certainly believe that Russia intervened and that Trump is a criminal who committed obstruction of justice and who is surrounded all the time by rampant criminality. But it's also no doubt true that this situation and the hawkish liberal response to it have dangerously damaged U.S.-Russia relations. At the core of American misunderstanding is the way that we typically think about Vladimir Putin, which is what I'm discussing today with Tony Wood, the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War. Before we get rolling, this podcast only exists because listeners support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Not only that, but we just used your contributions to build our new website, thedigradio.com, which has all of our archives available and searchable by guest and by topic for free. We are now spending another big chunk of the money that you're contributing on transcribing our archive and posting those transcripts for free at thedigradio.com so that our show is available to deaf people, and also to people who just don't like listening to podcasts or who want a textual reference. We also, of course, send donors of $10 or more a month left-wing books in the mail as a token of our gratitude. Please contribute what you can now, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash the dig. 
Okay, here's Tony Wood, the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, from Verso, and a member of the editorial committee at New Left Review. Tony Wood, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me on. You write that Putin, quote, perhaps more than any other major national leader, personifies his country in the eyes of the outside world. Why is it that it's so self-evident to so many people, not only outside Russia, but also inside, that Putin is Russia and vice versa? And why, as your book argues, is this a foundational mystification that obscures Russia's reality? I think there are two different dynamics in play here, one that is particular to Russia and one that is general, I think, to the way politics is covered and discussed in the wider world. Um, I mean, to start with the second aspect, I think there has been over the past, I don't know, 20 years a very strong personalization of politics and a tendency to understand all developments through the prism of particular personalities. To some extent, that's a sign of the kind of ideological times we're living in and the and the flight from larger structural narratives that has taken place over most of that period, I would say. And so the kind of the the media phenomenon of of focusing on, you know, whether it was I mean, from Tony Blair and Bill Clinton onwards, you know, you really have this, these individuals crystallize a lot of what politics is about. And I think for the media, that's been a very strong tendency in particular, that it gives you a clear narrative hook to hang whatever analysis you're making on. So there is a very broad tendency and you see this in, uh, I mean, in a lot of countries now, you know, there's Modi's India, Erdogan's Turkey, and, you know, obviously also Trump's US, right? That this this is a general trend, I would say. But at the same time, I think there's a particular twist uh, that this has been given in Russia, which I think really reflects a decline in knowledge of the actual place. You know, I think in the Soviet period, there was a very large complex of uh, Cold War think tanks and policy analysis people and academics and all kinds of experts weighing in with views on how the Soviet Union worked. And there were obvious flaws and ideological leanings baked into that analysis, if you like. But um, but at least a lot of Westerners were studying the Soviet Union. And today we have a lot of the Cold War fixation with little of the expertise. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw this in the process of researching the book. I mean, you had, you know, you had English language translations of you know, very marginal, you know, academic texts in the Soviet Union. And there is not, it's not just that there isn't the budget to do that anymore, but the number of people who would even bother to look into that and know about it and have the language expertise to understand it is much, much uh, reduced now. So I think the focus on Putin is very much a product of that decline in broader knowledge of the system that he leads and represents Uh, And it provides, again, a convenient sort of narrative hook for understanding all developments in Russia. So those two developments, if you like, taken together, uh, I think, explain this focus on Putin. But there's another aspect to it, which is that over time, that tendency becomes self-reinforcing, right? That the more developments in Russia are understood through the prism of Putin's personality, the more you need his personality to explain any new 
event or fact or development. So there's a kind of constantly narrowing circle of reference now. Um, and so my book was intended to really to push against, you know, all of those tendencies and to try and broaden out the view. And Putin is larger than life domestically as well inside of Russia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is both um, a conscious strategic choice and it is also a feature of uh, how the system operates. It's a very, uh, it's a hyper-presidential system. Constitutionally speaking, the powers of the presidency are, are tremendous. I mean, much more so than the U.S., whether it had been Putin or someone else, there would have been this very strong emphasis on an individual leader just because of the way the institutions themselves work. But then on top of that, there is the way that power in post-Soviet Russia is also very personalized in non-constitutional, non-formalized ways. And that amplifies that effect additionally. And then I would also say that there is this unhealthy loop between Russian domestic perceptions and Western perceptions as well. So the fact that the West is so single-mindedly obsessed with Putin and negative about him actually reinforces his centrality domestically uh, and reinforces his popularity domestically, you know, because the Russians feel that, uh, you know, this national leader who has presided over some degree of recovery after the post-Soviet disaster is being attacked for that reason by the West, right? That's a very common perception in Russia that Putin is not unpopular because of his, you know, we can go into all of the reasons why he might be unpopular in the Rus in Russia and in the West. Uh, but there is this perception in Russia that a lot of the Western hostility is because of the recovery of Russia to, you know, some minor version of its previous role. So that I think there's both, there are, in a way, it's kind of hard to separate out the domestic factors from the external ones because... Uh, there is this loop between Russian and Western perceptions, especially around this figure of the leader. Well, before we do what you suggest and look at everything underneath and behind Putin, I want to do what you're arguing against doing too much of, which is to talk about Putin the person. He was shaped, you write, not just by his time as a Soviet KGB agent, but also very much by the fall of the Soviet Union and then by his time in local and national government under Yeltsin how was it that Putin moved from the KGB to deputy mayor of St. Petersburg to prime minister and then president? How did that trajectory shape Putin? And what does that trajectory reveal about the nature of elite power in post-Soviet Russia? Yeah, I think I, while writing this book, I was for a very long time resistant to the idea of even including this narrative at all because it, it's become a compulsory part of any book on Russia that you have to have a narrative of Putin's career and how he got from A to B to C to D to the presidency. But then I realized that actually this is very useful for the argument though that I want to make in fact that that in a way I have to put him there in order to illustrate how all of the things that are used to explain his rise are really systemic features. And so you see this you see this reflected in different stages of his career. Uh, when he is stationed in East Germany uh, in the 1980s, he is a fairly low-ranking member of the of the the security services. He's spying on. We're not clear who, whether it's East German dissidents or more likely fellow Soviet citizens uh, working in the GDR. And he experiences the the collapse of the Soviet Union as a kind of betrayal. Right, that that the Soviet state implodes, leaves him directionless, and very importantly, he. And his peers felt that they had been abandoned by what used to be a great state 
in the midst of a large popular upheaval, right? 1989, the sort of springtime of people that was happening across uh, Eastern Europe. So this is important because it fills him with this sense of the popular politics is inherently dangerous and destabilizing, right? It's not a democratizing. This is all happening and no one is picking up the phone in Moscow. Right. No one is answering the phone in Moscow. So there's disarray in the state apparatus and there is popular politics on the streets. And to him, this combination is, you know, terrifying and uh, cataclysmic, really. Um, so he returns to the Soviet Union. The other important thing here is that he has missed all of Perestroika, right? He has been in East Germany spying on people while Russians have been re-examining their own history, rediscovering, uh, uh, you know, tons of previously banned writers, previously unseen films. There, It's a tremendous period both of political and cultural rebirth and real democratization of public culture. There's just a lot of possibilities in the air at the same time as there is this uh, deepening economic crisis in the second half of the 1980s. And it's a very uh, turbulent but also exciting period. He doesn't get to witness any of that really. So he returns to his home city of uh, Leningrad, as it was then called, in 1990, I think. And he had been a, a a law student. So he has connections among fellow law students there. And this is one of the paths how he gets into uh, working for the mayor of what then becomes St. Petersburg, who is Anatoly Sobchak, who is one of the leading liberal politicians in the city and a, a law professor at the university who had taught Putin. Uh, and so he, he slots into this role with Sobchak in, uh, I want to say, 1992. And he, um, he is put in charge of St. Petersburg's trade relations with foreign companies, among other things. And he's put in charge of also trade concessions that are operated uh, by the city. And this is a very, this is a very important point because it puts him in this very sensitive position where he knows all of the dirty secrets, if you like, of the city's economy. And it's, he's in charge of these tremendous flows of money, really, at a moment of real economic crisis and deprivation for most of the population. And at this point in, in 1992, there is a, a scandal around a, um, a contract to import food supplies, which, uh, you know, the food supplies don't materialize. It's clearly a swindle. There have been enormous kickbacks. And this has all been investigated and reported on by numerous Russian reporters. And it features in all of the Putin biographies too. What, it's mostly taken to illustrate is, you know, Putin's personal corruption, but which I think is significant. But he's always been a bad guy deep down. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to totally skate over that. That's obviously true because, you know, the city was starving and he and his friends made, you know, millions off this crooked contract, it seems. Um, but I think the the important systemic feature to bring out of this is that here was a person in a position of state power who was doing deals with business that were uh, shady, to say the least. Um, that's, that's one important feature, that there is this interpenetration of the worlds of state and business, and Putin, from the beginning, knows how to play that. The second feature that's important, I think, is that he develops in this period a series of friendships, personal connections, loyalties, in the city administration among his fellow St. Petersburg lawyers and so on, Many of these people then go on to be key figures in his presidential administration or in his uh, immediate circle. Some of them are businessmen. Some of them are his, you know, uh, 
judo partners. Some of them are fellow members of a dacha cooperative. And some of them, one of them is uh, the future prime minister and president, Dmitry Medvedev. Um, so a lot of these key personnel are around at that point. And I think what that shows you is the the importance of personal connections and proximity in how these elite relationships function in Russia. Um, so I think the the story of Putin's rise to power, you know, certainly up until that point is the things I would single out are that exactly the overlap between state and business and the importance of informal personal mechanisms to ensuring your political survival. He's in the city administration until 1996. Uh, at that point, Sobchak goes for re-election, loses, um, and Putin is at that point out of a job. But again, the personal connections come in. One of his St. Petersburg contacts is working for the Yeltsin government. This is Alexei Kudrin, who goes on to be finance minister. Uh, and Kudrin calls him to Moscow, and he then gets a job working in the presidential property administration, which is a very sensitive position. Uh, as you can imagine, the whole portfolio of presidential property, including all of the ones the public knows about, and presumably a lot the public doesn't know about, handling vast amounts of money. And again, one of these cases ended in a scandal, uh, the arrest of Putin's direct superior, a guy called Pavel Baradin. Uh, he was arrested in New York on money laundering charges in, I think, 2001. Uh, so he's clearly close to a lot of very sensitive secrets and a lot of money and a lot of, again, business deals within and passing through the state apparatus. So that's 1996. I mean, we I don't want to, you know, go over every single move, but suffice to say between 96 and 1999, Putin moves very swiftly uh, up the ladder through a series of positions. And the, the the key factor here, I think, is his loyalty to his superiors, right? He He proves that he's not going to rat anyone out. He doesn't trample on anyone on his way up, as far as we know. He doesn't throw anyone to the dogs. Uh, what he does is he he preserves his boss's secrets. So, you know, by the time Putin becomes prime minister in 1999, it's a bit of a shock to everyone in Russia when he's appointed prime minister in uh, uh, August 1999. Uh, no one's ever heard of him. Right. Very, very few people have heard of him. Uh, he's not a TV personality. There's, you know, he has no charisma attaching to his name. Uh, he doesn't even run uh, a ministry of which people really approve. At that point, he'd been head of the FSB, the successor to the KGB, for but only for a few months. So he is this very gray figure, basically. But what really recommends him for the job, as far as Yeltsin is concerned, is this proven loyalty to his superiors. There's a lot of reasons that Yeltsin might be incarcerated in a hypothetically just society, and he's confident that Putin will not do that to him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Yeltsin is re-elected in 1996 for a second term uh, with, it must be said, the help of some meddling by the US and influxes of very suspicious cash uh, and electoral rigging. This is all well known and documented. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial by saying that. Yeltsin is re-elected, but most of his second term is really about the quest for a successor who will not throw him in jail. And he tries out a variety of options, none of which uh, can really guarantee him that safety. The person who will do that is Putin. This is fulfilled on the 1st of January 2000. Yeltsin surprises everyone on New Year's Eve of 1999, right, going into the new, uh, the new year, by resigning. 
uh, and Putin, who at that point is prime minister, suddenly becomes acting president. Uh, and this is actually quite a smart move politically because it means that going into the elections, which are due to be held in the spring, uh, Putin is running for president, but he's actually already going to be acting president. So it just overnight makes him into the incumbent. But the striking thing about this politically, you know, behind all that smart maneuvering is that the first thing Putin does as acting president is to sign a decree granting Yeltsin immunity. I think it's not an ad hominem decree. It's a decree of immunity for all former presidents. But at that point, there has only been one former president. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, and, and I put a lot of emphasis in the book uh, on this moment because this this handover, this sort of monarchical succession, if you like, indicates a degree of continuity between the two men, but also the fact that the, the the precondition for that handover is precisely that Yeltsin will be shielded from prosecution by his successor. And Putin is the man who will do that. And I think I argue in the book that this is symbolic of a larger, this is symbolic of a larger feature of the relationship between the two men, which is that Putin is consolidating and extending the legacy of Yeltsin into the 2000s. Yeah, I want to talk more about that because a lot of criticism of Putin is really premised on him being a sharp break on what came before him, which the second you start looking at the Yeltsin administration really starts to fall apart. The, the conventional wisdom, for example, is that Putin reversed Yeltsin's economic opening of the 90s and has returned Russia to its statist past, both economically and politically. But you write that this has everything almost entirely wrong. And then in fact, Putin's Russia is very much an inheritance of Yeltsin's Russia and of that regime's sharp break with the Soviet system, an imitation democracy rooted not in the Soviet past, but in a post-Soviet U.S. and Western-supported effort to protect an incredibly vicious and unconstrained capitalism. I explain your argument and how we should understand this transition from Yeltsin to Putin. I borrowed the term uh, imitation democracy from the uh, late Russian political scientist Dmitry Furman because I think it really gets at something important about these regimes that emerged not just in Russia but across the uh, the post-Soviet space, uh, which is that formally speaking, these are democratic regimes, right? They have elections every four years. They have more than one party. They have parliaments, et cetera, et cetera. They have all of the outward appearances of a democracy. But in terms of substance, one of the consistent features of these states in the last, you know, the, the period since 1991 has been, it has been almost impossible for the opposition to come to power through those elections and through those democratic processes. There have been a few occasions when that cycle has been broken, right? And you have cases like Ukraine and you have Georgia and you have a few other examples. But, but generally speaking, the pattern has been one of a continuation of the same democratic party in power. And, and the Russians call this uh, uh, a condition, uh, one of alternativelessness. And so the, the question that Furman, I think, poses very sharply, and which, again, I'm, I'm indebted to his analysis for this, is that, that what is the reason for that lack of alternatives? Uh, and it's because these regimes are defending something, and they're defending 
this new capitalist system that was built in the aftermath of 1991. And it's the outcomes of that process of transition, that process of creation of a new capitalist order that all of these political systems are built to defend. So there is a contradiction here between the democratic forms of these regimes and the fundamentally anti-democratic substance of these regimes. Because one has to remember that these programs of capitalist transition, they were often implemented through you know, very opaque privatization processes. They involved shock therapy measures in the economy. They involved just tremendous deprivation and suffering for the population at large and, you know, real economic and industrial depressions in a lot of these countries on which the population did really not have a say. I mean, when Yeltsin was elected president of Russia, this is, you know, it happens in, in, in June of 1991. So he's president of the Russian component of the Soviet Union, and that's his mandate for then becoming president. He's elected on a platform of reform, but it's not clear what that means at that point. So no one has actually voted for shock therapy, and no one has voted for the form that capitalism then took. And so there is this, I think this is the kind of crack in the foundations of these systems that they are, you know, they're fundamentally anti-democratic. But when democratic norms come into conflict with the need to defend this new capitalist system, it's clear who's going to win that one, right? It's, it's you know, the defense of capitalism comes first. And so there's this this need for the, the trappings of democratic legitimation for a variety of reasons. And then the, quote, gaping lack of a popular mandate for their program of free market transformation. And the result of this collision is imitation democracy. Right, exactly. And so I think, you know, uh, what I try and do in the book is, is to describe, is to try and undo that idea of a break between Yeltsin and Putin. I, certainly there are contrasts and differences between the, the, the presidencies of the two men. I'm not saying they're the same. Um, but I think one needs to see them as two phases in the life cycle of that same imitation democratic system. That Yeltsin, in a sense, is is the uh, does the heavy lifting, right? He he is the one who is the destroyer of the previous system. He is the one who 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 creates this new capitalist system. You know, it's a very turbulent, chaotic phase. It's very murky. There's a lot of sort of very destructive things happening. Putin inherits what Yeltsin has to some extent already built. And so Putin is fundamentally in a different position. He doesn't have to do any of that work, right? He has to do something else. He has to consolidate, uh, solidify, and extend that system. And I think, you know, in some ways, there's there's a real point of contrast between the two men, apart from the the tasks they had to fulfill, if you like, for the for the benefit of this new capitalist system. Is the the, the a really key variable is is oil prices, right? For most of the 1990s, these are at really historic lows. And so Yeltsin doesn't have a lot of revenue with which to do these things, even as he's busily like privatizing, you know, the entirety of Soviet industry pretty much. And so there is this, this money is just being siphoned out of the state and being handed by the state to new private owners, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a massive divestment of money and a massive uh, sucking out of money from the state apparatus. With Putin, it's a different moment because he is able to gain uh, revenue from, from, oil and gas exports in a way that Yeltsin can't. So he is able to fulfill more of the duties of the state. He is able, for example, to pay pensions on time and in full. This is really not to be underestimated as a source of Putin's enduring popularity. You have to bear in mind for much of the 90s, pensioners were being paid very, very little. 
and they were being paid often, you know, six months late. Or, you know, there'd be workers who were being paid in goods rather than cash. And again, this would happen for, you know, six months at a time. This is really, really very difficult for people to survive. Um, in the 2000s, partly thanks to oil money, partly thanks to a kind of economic recovery that begins to set in uh, after 1998, and we can go into that more later. Uh, but but Putin is is experiencing much more favorable economic wins. So I would say that Putin is both in a better position in terms of just luck, um, but he's also cast in a different role in terms of uh, what the system needs from him. Putin is the consolidator, whereas Yeltsin had been the kind of uh, moment of creative destruction, if you like. You make this really interesting argument that the Soviet legacy did play a role, but not the one that's traditionally assigned to it. Instead, you argue that the the vestiges of the communist system haven't held Russian capitalism back. In fact, they cushioned the blow of capitalism and thus smoothed its implementation, especially throughout the 1990s. Explain your argument. What was it about the Soviet past, economically, institutionally, ideologically, whatever, that helped facilitate this transition? Yeah, this is probably the most uh, perverse argument in the book. Um, <laughs> because there is such a weight of opinion, both in Russia and outside it, that that the Soviet legacies are the problem. They are what Russia needs to overcome. And any of, of Russia's current uh, ills are usually put down to the survival of these Soviet legacies, whether it be Soviet mindsets among the population or crumbling infrastructure or, you know, rusting industrial equipment or whatever it is. And you see this very much in the trope uh, of Homo Sovieticus, right? This is a trope of, of uh, Russian sociology, which has been taken up by liberal commentators outside Russia very enthusiastically, which is that the quote unquote totalitarian system left its imprint on the minds of so many people and they are still stuck in the past in this way. And, you know, it, it gave rise to a specific kind of human being, would you believe? I think what I'm trying to do in the book is really turn that argument on its head, right, as you were saying. And this came really out of my experiences of living in and traveling to Russia. The, the, the past is very much alive, uh, you know, in terms of physical infrastructure, uh, in terms of how people think and talk and in the language, right? You know, history doesn't just disappear overnight, right? That it's all sort of sedimented and present. And I had this sort of intuition or conviction really that that the present regime is really feeding off that past. It's not, it's not built from scratch. There was no tabula rasa in 1991, right? It had to be built within the ruins of the old system. And, and so my kind of... And this was a system that was very much ruined in many in many ways it's just an entire collapse of of identities power relationships institutions just an incredible unmaking of everything yeah absolutely it was very total i mean and i should say also some of the the unmaking had been going on before 1991 right some of the economic trends you can trace back much further some of the cultural disintegration if you like also could be traced back further to the brezhnev period so it's not all happening at the same speed um, but it was a very complete unmaking, yeah. And that that that's a that's a, a kind of key term here. And so my my question, as I was working on this book, was what are the effects of that combination of things, right? Of the, the persistence of the old, which is just inevitably there, uh, alongside the creation of new forms of social relations, new you know everything, new buildings, 
uh, new kinds of job, new technologies, whatever it is. So it's a there is new figures of wealth and poverty. Yeah, and and you see this, you know, new gender relations, new gender relations, absolutely. Like it's 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 very pervasive, and and so I think that narrative of the Soviet legacies are the problem. Is I mean, apart from being morally dubious in all kinds of ways, to me, uh, is also just analytically very unsatisfactory, right? That it doesn't, that doesn't get you anywhere. So, so my question was, if these legacies are present and if the new system is being built in their midst, what are the effects of that? And I came to very different conclusions, uh, which is that, that the persistence of all of those fragments of the past has actually been a kind of subsidy to the new order. It's actually been one of the things that enabled this new system to be constructed with a relative lack of protest, right? This is one of the curious features that of Russia in the 1990s, actually, that given how turbulent and difficult this was, given how much suffering, given how much, you know, post-imperial resentment there is in the air, like, why was there not more actual rebellion in the streets? You know, why did that not happen? This, I mean, and, you know, I remember this being, having spent time in Russia in the 1990s, that at the time, people were often talking about you know, this is like Weimar Germany, right? Something terrible is going to come in response to this. And that didn't really happen. And so the question is, why was that not happening then? And why has it not happened since? And and yeah, my answer to that question is because the persistence of the Soviet legacies kind of muffled discontent, right? Um, I mean, concretely, one of the ways this happened is some fragments of Soviet social welfare infrastructure, for example, continue to survive. Through state enterprises, for example. Through state enterprises, for example. Yeah, that's absolutely one. Another one is that uh, a lot of these state, not just state enterprises, actually, but all kinds of enterprises, one of the ways that they survived the economic depression of the 1990s was was not to lay off workers and go through a kind of restructuring as a normal quote unquote, uh, capitalist business would do, but they would actually keep people on the books and just not pay them or underpay them, right? So people would, through that enterprise, they would retain access to various kinds of, you know, housing and uh, childcare and, you know, access to things that the, the enterprise provided, but they wouldn't receive any money and they wouldn't have a job, right? So at that point, a person can be a factory worker in terms of a lot of their social situation, but to earn money, they're like driving a cab or uh, selling vitamins door to door or whatever it is. So that process of the 90s, one of the reasons it was so disorientating and confusing for Russians was partly that uh, very total systemic collapse that we talked about. But it's also because they're inhabiting uh, multiple social identities at the same time. And for an industrial worker, they were once ide- inhabiting an incredibly valorized identity that was not only at the center of Soviet society, but ideologically at the vanguard of world revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And now these people are told that not only is that not the case, but they themselves are the problem or they're the cause of, you know, so many of the world's ills. And this is a very deeply demoralizing experience, both collectively in terms of class identity, but also on a personal level. I mean, there's a, a French sociologist based in Russia, Karine Clément, whose work I, I draw on a lot on this because she she spent a good chunk of the 90s interviewing workers at a car plant, actually several car plants, uh, but mostly around Moscow. Um, and the the sense of, I mean, she uses this, uh, you know, the the term desubjectivation, right? Uh, but it, but the sense of a kind of loss of 
individual identity and purpose in the world was very deeply demoralizing to people. But at the same time, you know, they continued to have these jobs in the factories which didn't pay them more. There's a situation here where the lingering of those old structures, in my view, is is one of the things that is preventing people from being totally cast out. It's enabling them to survive. But on the other hand, it's also preventing them from much more desperate right radicalization if you like there you know it's not like hordes of dispossessed peasants are cast from the land like in a kind of medieval revolt situation right that these are industrial workers who are you know demotivated uh, and you know caught in the midst of an both an economic and an individual depression but but they're so deprived of agency uh, that it's very difficult for them to collectively mobilize to improve their situation so yeah that that's just one particular example of this like the the parallel existence of the old and the new is one of the things that allows the new system to be consolidated with i think much less difficulty and turbulence than would have otherwise been the case to argue that russia under putin has become more statist people point to state control of major companies on the economy's commanding heights which do comprise a huge portion of russia's gdp And then they also point to crackdowns on high-profile, super-rich people, most notably the incarceration of Mikhail Khodorkovsky and the seizure of Yukos, his oil company. How is Russia's changing relationship with business and the super-rich people that run Russian businesses conventionally read? And and what, in your view, is, is actually what's happening in the relationship? between the state and business. Yeah, I think the the general reading of this is that the 1990s were a time of, you know, turbulent entrepreneurialism when um, a number of businessmen managed to make their fortunes in sometimes murky, but on the whole legitimate ways. Um, and then in the 2000s, Putin comes in and starts to kind of claw back some of the terrain that the state has lost uh, until the point where it becomes this overweening, you know, statist presence and starts to clamp down on private business. And I th- I think that's totally false, right? As a picture of both the 1990s and the 2000s, I think both halves of that are wrong. I think one of the things I, I go into some detail in in the book is actually the, the, the creation of this new elite in the 1990s was facilitated by and dependent on the state, right? There is this close relationship between the state and private business. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, with the rise of Putin and his time in St. Petersburg, right? There is this overlap, this interpenetration of the worlds of state and business that's very close in Russia. And so you have to imagine that the 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 new oligarchs, these new millionaires who emerge, I say billionaires, I guess, who emerge in the 1990s are thoroughly dependent on and in many cases, parasitic on the state. What happens in the 2000s is a kind of tilt in the balance of power between the state and these businessmen. I mean, the other distinction I think is worth making, and again, I I go into more detail in this in the book, is that there is this picture that there are oligarchs in the state as if these are, you know, business and the state as if these are two separate factions. But it's not just that these two worlds are actually more interpenetrated than people realize. But it's also that there's more than 
one category of businessmen, right? And I, the, the, the distinction I make here- You're right, I, that they're insiders and outsiders. Yeah, and this is one, this is a distinction made by a, a Russian economist called Sergei Bragensky, who has done a lot of work on this, and very interesting stuff, that he, he categorizes all of the oligarchs between, you know, into these two groups, insiders, outsiders. And insiders, you know, are close to the state apparatus. They either had jobs in the Soviet bureaucracy or they had relatives or other connections with that they were you know often former factory managers or collective farm managers so um, those are people inside the system in some way and the outsiders as the name suggests were not in that system they were you know operating in the cracks of state authority making money in occasionally underhanded ways and so what happens in the 1990s is that this is a period of of state uh, disarray Yeltsin is creating these new oligarchs by dismantling state socialist system the, uh, and the planned economy. And so in that period, it's these outsider oligarchs, the ones who are not in positions close to the state, who are mainly benefiting. And it's also the case that in the 1990s, the, the economic sectors that are mainly benefiting are you know, the ones closest to banking and finance and flows of cash and not the ones close to physical infrastructure and industry and uh, natural resources, right? Those are faring very badly in the 1990s. And that's what the insider oligarchs tend to own at that point. And so these are people who sort of situated themselves proximate to these cash flows that are suddenly bursting forth as the Soviet system is disintegrating. And they're just standing in between that explosion of of assets and money and wherever it's heading and and taking some or a lot. And yeah, exactly. And, and often, you know, uh, I mean, for example... A lot of Russian ministries after 91, a lot of their finances were not handled by the state bank. They were handled by private banks. So you can imagine like government money is being funneled through private banks. So, I mean, that's just a very direct way that some of these, you know, outsider oligarchs made fortunes off the state, literally. What happens in the 2000s once Putin is in power um, and again, a lot of this is to do with the aftermath of the ruble crisis in 1998, which really damage the financial sector in Russia. A lot of it is due to the recovery of natural resource prices after 1999, I guess, more or less. There's a, there's a tilt in the balance of power between these two categories of oligarch, right? The, at, at this point in the 2000s, the insiders start to do much better and the outsiders start to do worse. And so to begin with, what this looks like is a reassertion of uh, state power, but actually it's it's a recovery of the insiders relative to the outsiders. Um, and then over time, what starts to happen is the state strengthens its role and, and does begin to sort of, you know, seize assets and does begin to weigh more in certain sectors. But what I would say about this is, is, is two things. One is that in a sense, this is just, this is a kind of rationalization of the previous situation, right? I mean, maybe for, for a U.S. audience, it's, it seems strange to have state ownership of an oil company, but actually that is the global norm, right? From like Saudi Arabia to Norway. I mean, it, actually to Mexico, to Venezuela, of course, to, you know, wherever it is, the U.S. is the exception in global terms in terms of oil companies, right? Most of these strategic sectors are dominated by state-owned concerns worldwide. And so to some extent, Putin, by reasserting the role of the state in the oil sector, is rationalizing that in line with global norms, and also because he thinks it's strategically important for a state to have control of its dominant source of revenue, right? Which doesn't, I mean, it doesn't seem totally crazy to me. But at the same time, Putin is not 
expanding the presence of the state in the rest of the economy, right? He's still privatizing things left, right, and center. He's extending the reach of, you know, commodification in in education and healthcare. He's monetizing a range of social benefits. So there's there's always been this like two pronged uh, character to Putin's economic strategy. One is very energetically neoliberal, I would say, and especially in its early phase. Um, and the other is a kind of strategic limited statism in particular sectors. And and I think those two things need to be borne in mind instead of this narrative of sort of a creeping state takeover. I mean, and the, the second thing I would say about this apparent state takeover and that's that's, I think, often passed over in commentary on this is that often these state companies, even when the state does take over a, a company or, you know, expand its presence in a given sector, it's often not acting like a state-owned company would in other economic models, right? It's not acting in the interests of the public. It's not doing it to serve some larger state goal often. It's often doing it to maximize profits for its shareholders who are often state functionaries. So there's a sense in which state-owned companies act according to the same logic as private ones. It's just the money goes somewhere else. And that gets back to that distinction between insiders and outsiders we were talking about, that in some ways this is a what looks like a state takeover is really actually a further expansion of the influence of insiders, but now they have much more powerful uh, administrative resources with which to do that. The conventional wisdom that there's this terrifying consolidation of parasitic interlinked private and public power in Russia is correct. The, the big misunderstanding is identifying Putin as the central cause of this state of affairs rather than more of an effect of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess what I, what I would say is that, that, that that's not uh, a misleading description, but um, it, it dates back to the foundation of the post-Soviet system. And I think this is my, my problem with the term uh, kleptocracy, which is one that people like to use about Russia or mafia state or whatever it is, that what you're describing there makes it sound quite limited as if it's some sort of, you know, thieving behavior by a particular set of individuals. And once you remove or sanction those individuals, then you will have a healthy uh, system. Whereas actually what I'm saying is all of the trends you're describing are structural features of the kind of capitalism Russia has, right? So they're, they're really built into it and they're built into it, not just at the state level, but actually at the local level too. Like the, this is a chain of similar dynamics happening throughout the system. So you really need, if you want to get rid of that, that parasitic relationship uh, and that very dense interweaving of state and business to the exclusion of uh, many ordinary citizens, you really need to have a much more systemic overhaul than I think people are willing to contemplate. I want to talk more about energy, which you've alluded to a few times. The disintegration of the Soviet Union not only created these spectacular new forms of wealth and poverty, but also accelerated a massive change in the Russian economies, I guess, in the, in the material basis for the, for the production of, of this wealth and poverty. You write that mass deindustrialization was accompanied by a growing reliance on energy. And energy is much less labor intensive than the industrial sectors that decline. And this transition you write left Russia hugely exposed to the vagaries of the commodity market, but that it was in reality an acceleration of declining industrial growth that began after World War II, which new discoveries of oil had smoothed over. 
explain this long-term restructuring and what's significant about the ways that it's remade Russian political economy. Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, this is an area where you know one needs to have a slightly different time frame from just the Putin era or even just the Yeltsin era, right? A lot of this goes back, as you said, to to really you need to go back to the period since World War II. And essentially what this is about is that the, the Soviet industrial system, I mean, really it was built and designed, you know, in the 1930s. It was uh, built on kind of all-out mobilization of the population for industrial growth. And in a lot of ways it was very successful in in terms of raising output, in terms of making the Soviet Union a, a full uh, competitor, uh, in terms of power to the Western states, and especially relative to Nazi Germany, right? So, so I mean, one of the reasons they were able to fight back uh, the German armies was because they just outproduced them in terms of just amounts of iron and tanks and so on and so forth. But that model was modified and expanded and changed over the succeeding years, but it wasn't really fully transformed uh, or reformed. And so what you start to see from the sort of late 60s onwards or possibly earlier is a kind of slowdown uh, in the Soviet economy. And again, this this happens in capitalist economies too, but often the way that that's dealt with is to have, you know, uh, some kind of massive shakeout or economic depression or crisis. And the Soviet Union didn't really do that because it was built according to different principles, but also because these discoveries of large oil reserves in Western Siberia supplied a new source of revenues um, and new sources of growth. So what you have is this is a, is a compensating set of discoveries uh, in the 60s, 70s. And this is actually, you know, I mean, I've been to some of these West Siberian oil towns and these are places which, I mean, basically didn't exist in 1960. And by 1963, there's a whole new city there. So you can imagine the the, the impact this would have. That really, it, you know, gives the Soviet Union a certain amount of breathing room, if you like, and they gain a lot of export revenues at that point. But um, but there is no overhaul of the model. Um, and so what happens when you get to Gorbachev in the 1980s, don't forget, it's it's this is a crucial turning point for the Soviet Union as a whole, is, is the collapse of the oil prices in the mid-1980s. And that's one of the main reasons Gorbachev and his reforms run into such trouble, is that they're unable to use oil revenues to fund the the imports Russia needs. That's partly why the crisis is so deep. If they had done Gorbachev's reforms, you know, these counterfactuals are always slightly silly. But if Gorbachev had uh, been able to implement his reforms like even five years earlier, who knows, it might have worked out very differently. So what you have is this is this untransformed industrial model limping on uh, at a fairly, I shouldn't say limping, actually, just continuing on, but not supplying real growth. And then you have uh, that being compensated for with new oil revenues, but but the minute the oil revenues run into trouble, as in the 1980s and throughout most of the 1990s, that model uh, starts to experience these very deep crises. What happens in the 1990s is just a much more profound economic collapse and crisis, um, and there's a real shrinkage of the entire economic base of the country. And then at the same time, this oil sector continues and it becomes proportionally much more important. Right, so Russia, by the time Putin even arrives, Russia is much more dependent on oil revenues than the Soviet Union had been, and that dependence has really only increased. And one of the factors behind this is is that Russia is 
in terms of its position in the world economy, Russia is really in a much more disadvantaged position than the Soviet Union had been. It doesn't have this network of client states. It doesn't have goods that any other export market wants particularly. It doesn't make them anymore. And so it doesn't have many alternatives to that oil and gas revenue that it could lean on to rebalance its economy. I mean, every Russian president has talked about uh, escaping the resource curse to some degree. I mean, especially President Medvedev, uh, he talked about this was part of the reason for his modernization agenda was that we need to tilt away from natural resources and obviously didn't work. And so what you see Russian governments try to do is, is, is develop some alternative to this dependence on oil or at least to mitigate it. And, and I mean, sadly, one of the major things uh, they've been able to do is is exports of weapons, right? Which they showed off in their intervention in Syria. Yeah, and Syria was definitely one of the places where they, they tested these things out and showed what they could do. And, you know, there were several states that then bought more of these weapons as a result. I mean, you know, Algeria bought some, Egypt did. I mean, Venezuela is also a very large client for Russian weaponry. Um, so that's one source uh, of revenue for the Russians. I mean, the other major one now, which maybe people are not so aware of, is is grain exports. Like behind Canada, I think Russia is the second largest grain exporter in the world at the moment. And so, you know, it does have other assets, other uh, resources or possibilities uh, within its economy, but it's in the current world economic climate, it's very hard for them to to do that and to regain anything like the previous niche that they had. So, I mean, I go in into the, I go into this in the book a bit about what are Russia's alternatives and can it reduce this dependency on oil? And I, I mean, my, my conclusion is a little pessimistic. So I, I'm not sure that the world economy and their position in it is 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 favorable to that kind of shift. I mean, by the way, not just for Russia, but for you know a number of resource producing countries, it's very difficult now to implement anything like the strategies that those countries could have tried in, you know, the mid 20th century, that kind of developmentalist import substituting kind of Ins- model. Import substitution, yeah. It would be very hard to pull off now for, I mean, for a number of different reasons. Well, one potential future complication for Russia's reliance on oil and gas exports that that I don't think you mentioned is that if, if humanity as we know it is going to survive, well, we're going to have to wipe out the use of fossil fuels do you see a potential green transition if it takes root in the countries that currently buy Russian energy? Do you see that as presenting potentially a, a profound challenge? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I mean, this is something I've uh, that I I don't address that much in the book. You're right. I mean, I have written about it elsewhere, which is quite the. I mean, I've written about the the Russian relationship to climate change, which is very different from a lot of the world. I think. Uh, I mean, because as far as, you know, much of Russia is not cultivable terrain at the moment, right? It's And a lot of it is like locked by permafrost or under ice a lot of the time. So there, there is a strong current of opinion in Russia, which thinks, you know, two degrees warming will give us thousands of kilometers more land on which to grow crops, for example. Wow. It will make the Arctic accessible and all of its resources in ways that were previously not possible. You know, there, so there are ways in which it's it's not imagined to be the disaster it would very obviously be for the for the rest of the planet, and you know, and I've talked to uh, climate scientists in Russia who are saying, well, this is not that big a deal. 
Um, which wow. and that's a very staggeringly <laughs> different perspective, right? I mean, that's oh. the you know, but one does have to think about that, right? Like politically, programmatically, what difference does it make if the 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 imperatives facing Russia with climate change are just fundamentally different from those facing you know Bangladesh or the the Comoros or wherever you want to talk about that that are really facing disaster. Yeah. Um, and I think that has not really played out in terms of uh, an alternative ecological strategy or economic model for Russia that would factor that in. I think because, well, a number of things, because of just the extreme dependence on uh, resource exports um, and because I think, you know, Russia's current rulers are really not geared to thinking in the long term. They're very much uh, geared to their own survival and what will allow them to continue the current model, but they're not thinking in terms of what kind of planet are we going to bequeath to our descendants? I think that's not in their in their thoughts. Unfortunately, that seems like a shared characteristic of leaders everywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, they're not alone at all, of course. Often, critics looking for an explanation for his stifling of democracy look to his KGB past. But this too, you write, is in no way a departure from the Yeltsin years. And you, and you mentioned this earlier because it was... Yeltsin, who built Russia's imitation democracy, shelling the Congress of People's Deputies in 1993 and then usurping new powers to the presidency by way of a rigged constitutional reform referendum. And the West was cheering him on the whole time. How do Yeltsin and Putin's authoritarianism and imitation democracy compare to one another? And what does the the West's selective criticism of Russian authoritarianism reveal yeah that's absolutely it that that i do see this yeltsin as the as the constructor of or at least of laying the foundations of this system that then putin built upon and and constitutionally you know i mean one of the striking things about putin is that uh, he's very legalistic right i mean everything he's done is according to the letter of the constitution like he you know he left power after two terms uh, he put someone else in as president and became prime minister. There was a constitutional amendment to extend the presidential term to six years. And then he came back for another six years. And he's now into his fourth term as president. Two consecutive terms are allowed under the constitution. So in 2024, he will leave. Um, I mean, he and I think he will adhere to that. But But the reason he is able to do that and operate within the parameters is because this is a system built by Yeltsin that gives him the power to do that. You know, you mentioned the the... Yeltsin's bombing of the parliament in October 1993. I mean, that is really, I think, a much more foundational event for modern Russia than probably many people in the West realize. I think that was seen as a kind of uh, piece of sort of chaotic drama. Um, but, you know, Yeltsin made it through. So that main narrative line of the consolidation of democracy in Russia. And amongst the people he was shelling were, were communists. So it must have been a part of a transition to democracy. Right. And again, this goes back to the question of vestiges, right? That this was a parliament elected at the very end of the Soviet period. And so it contained a lot of communists, contained some, you know, nationalists and various other people too. But it was the elected parliament of the country. uh, And it was opposed, among other things, to Yeltsin's uh, shock therapy program. And this sort of standoff between the two branches uh, was resolved by force. And I think one can't underestimate how significant that is for the political life of a country for how it shapes the political landscape thereafter because it's clear that you know force is going to be resorted to 
and it's going to be the president who wields it. And, you know, really, though it was interpreted at the time as a victory for democracy, it's really a massive defeat for democracy and was seen that way and is seen that way by many Russians still today. I mean, an example of this is that it's still not clear how many people were actually killed in those clashes. Yeah, I think there's a real uh, underestimation of the the importance of that event and of the burying, uh, the lack of a full accounting for that in, in Russia. And it makes more of a difference than people realize. But I think the other thing it illustrates is that, you know, Yeltsin really was not a Democrat. He was mainly committed to the construction of a new capitalist system. And when that clashed with the democratic forms that Russia was taking on, he had no hesitation in dispensing with those. And the same is true of the 1996 election, of course, which we've already talked about, that the priority was to defend uh, capitalism. And and Putin is, is, is in a different position. He doesn't need to defend the same things. And so he is able to, to sort of, to put a different ideological emphasis uh, on his rule. I mean, one of the striking things, and this is a real difference between the two men, I think, and their rule, uh, Yeltsin was very steadfastly anti-communist. I mean, and that was the emphasis throughout his two presidencies. Putin doesn't have that imperative, right? He doesn't need to do that. The old system. So he can selectively recuperate things from throughout Russian history within and outside of the Soviet period as, as it suits him. Yeah. And he's in a way, he's a, as a kind of uh, consolidator, he's in a much more kind of conciliatory position. They're like, yes, you know, terrible things happen, but we mustn't throw out the past entirely. And so, for example, I mean, I think the best uh, symbolic representation of this is that uh, for most of the 1990s, Russia, the Russian national anthem was switched, right, to, uh, I think it's it's from Glinka, A Life for the Tsar, um, but they couldn't agree on words. So the Russian national anthem had no words for most of the <laughs> 1990s. Uh, and what happens a little bit after Putin comes into power, I've forgotten the exact year, he brings back the old music, the old Soviet national anthem, um, but gets new words written for it. So non-Soviet words with the tune of the old anthem. And so I think this is actually a nice little characteristic measure of, of the Putin strategy, right? That you 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 make some sort of appeal to the great power nostalgias, but you actually change the content of the song to make it more you know contemporary and nationally relevant. Um, and so he does a number of these kind of things. These are actually symbolic gestures and these act to a lot of the population. These are somewhat reassuring, right? They're saying the period of turbulent creative destruction is over. We're in a different phase. Uh, there is a kind of stability that starts to happen in the early 2000s. And that is broadly popular. And there's deep continuity right? rather and, than and, just rupture, which is comforting on some level. Yeah. And, and that, you know, for example, that, that there is a return to some kind of stability, but on the other hand, what was built in the 90s is not going to be undone. Right. And, and you know, you see this in measures of inequality. They don't really diminish by much in the 2000s. In some cases, they expand. Uh, and throughout, there is this commitment. I mean, this is one of the things I should have said earlier, I guess, in relation to uh, the oligarchs and the shift from the 1990s to the 2000s. There is no let up in the creation of vast private wealth under Putin. In fact, it massively expands. So the idea that Putin is uh, some sort of, you know, statist bent on curtailing the idea of private wealth and having the state take over the economy entirely is just demonstrably false. I mean, you just have to look at the Forbes lists year to year to see that the number of billionaires is increasing up until, uh, I guess, the 2008 crisis steadily increasing 
but it's just the sectoral distribution is different under Putin from Yeltsin. But but I think what I want to emphasize is is that the core principle of private profit is is entrenched and consolidated. Um, and so, in terms of of Putin's politics, I mean, where I come out on this is is that it actually makes his politics more incoherent in a way. Right, that Yeltsin is committed to destroying the old system, and it's clear what his mission is. Whereas Putin has to kind of uh, consolidate and balance and and stabilize, and that requires him to perform all kinds of uh, rhetorical maneuvers at the same time as maintaining the thrust of the previous system. And so this is one reason why I think it's very hard for most of Putin's presidencies at least to see a kind of coherent ideological project because he's he's playing all sides at once. There are a lot of competing frameworks that people use to attempt to understand Russian ideology nationalism, Russian ethnic nationalism, Christian orthodoxy, Eurasianism, concepts like managed democracy. But but you argue that fundamentally Russia lacks a core ideological framework, obviously in sharp contrast to the Soviet Union. To what degree do these various ideologies and maybe others that I didn't mention shape Russia? And to what extent do efforts to impose a coherent ideological system on Russia simply obscure the fact that it lacks one? I think often there are these ideological frameworks that are offered up as somehow explaining uh, policy decisions or Russia's orientation in the world. And I think in a lot of cases, this is the wrong way around. I think a lot of these ideological frameworks actually reflect the attempt to make sense of Russia's position. Uh, right, so it, the causal sequence is the other way around, and I think this is certainly true of Eurasianism, for example. I think this is an attempt to make a virtue out of Russia's geopolitical position and its very awkward uh, post-imperial role. And I think Russian nationalism, very similarly, it's it's been a, a more prominent motif, certainly in Putin's uh, third and fourth term, so since 2012. But I think that's largely a function of the increased tensions with the West that are that are kind of nationalist. Well, on the one hand, increased tensions with the West, and on the other hand, the slowdown of the growth that increased oil revenues supplied in the 2000s. So once that source of legitimation, the increasing prosperity and the return to stability, once that has run out, you need some other guiding motif. And in a context of increased tensions with the West, an assertion of national pride and the independence of Russia's interests uh, is a very good fit. But I think in some ways that, that the nationalism is a reactive response to Russia's situation rather than a creator of it, if you like. And I think in a way, you know, Putin has been very adaptable ideologically, which points to a kind of pragmatism, if you like. You know, very early on, he was he was very neoliberal and in fact, quite pro-Western. You know, I mean, he, in 2000, he asked Clinton if uh, Russia could join NATO and Obviously, Clinton didn't know what to say to this, but he did, and he has repeatedly made statements, Putin, about about Russia being part of European civilization, uh, Russian people being Europeans, et cetera, et cetera. And that was early on, rather like European Western chauvinist kind of civilizational thing, which is totally incompatible with Eurasianism. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, and now, I mean, obviously, Eurasianist motifs are popping up here and there, but in the end, I mean, I think. It's a framework which serves a purpose, 
but I, I don't see that it's now guiding Russia's actions. I think that Russia's actions are, can be explained much more by the substantive power imbalance, really, between Russia and the West, uh, and between the different pressures that Russia is responding to, and by the regime as it is doing what it thinks it needs to survive. Right. So, so there is a way in which a lot of these ideological motifs are kind of a reactive outburst that, that they're, they're laying hold of themes, propaganda, emphases, whatever you want to call them. They're laying hold of these resources, if you like, to justify their positions, both personally at the helm of Russian government uh, and to legitimize Russia's position in the world. But I don't see a kind of consistent project and a consistent drive. And I think one of the things that to me validates my argument is that that if they were more coherent ideologically, they wouldn't be so short-termist in their policy responses. They would have more of a clue what they were doing from month to month. Whereas I, I think a lot of what we've been seeing over the past few years is actually very chaotic and turbulent and a, and a sign of a, of a lack of that longer range perspective. On, on that note, I want to step back and ask you to explain this longer trajectory. Russia's hopeful approach to the West from from Gorbachev on through not only the beginning of the war on terror, but really at least through the intervention in Libya in many ways, and how this desire to be a member of the Western order and even NATO, how that comes undone amidst the West's eastward expansion of NATO, economic integration, and unilateralist U.S. military actions. Yeah, I think that's the right time frame in which to see this really, that it does go back to the late Soviet period, at least. I mean, the, the the overarching problem, if you like, framing this whole story is that is is of Russia's place in the world, right? What kind of country is it? What is it going to be? I mean, one way of thinking about this is that what was the Cold War about? Very obviously, it was a clash of ideological systems of socioeconomic socioeconomic orders, and I think that is the way you know a lot of people tend to interpret it, and with very good reason, but. There is another layer to that Cold War clash, which is that it was a conflict between states and blocks of states. And I think what we see happening over the past, whatever, 15, 20 years is the gradual emergence of that fundamental clash between states to replace the Cold War ideological polarity. So what you have now, even though people talk about it as a new Cold War, uh, it's really not like the old Cold War because there is no ideological divergence at stake and it's a much... A narrower conflict and it's not systemic, but there is a fundamental incompatibility of interests between blocks of states. And that is what is becoming clearer and clearer. And so that's the underlying, uh, if you like, narrative of the past 20 years, I think. And I think what's makes this, uh, what gives this a particular twist is that it took a long time for Russia itself to understand it in those terms. That was not immediately the way that it was seen. In From, I guess, the mid-1980s onwards, what took root among the Russian foreign policy establishment was this idea of a convergence between Russia and the West of the possibility of peaceful coexistence, you know, based on the assumption that once we remove a kind of systemic antagonism, there is no reason uh, for these states to be rivals or in conflict. Uh, and so, you know, Gorbachev often used this uh, concept of the common European home. And, you know, in the 1990s, this shifted again because Russia was fundamentally in a much weaker position. Um, and ideologically, it didn't have its own economic system, uh, its own sort of model to offer that it was actually really trying to become 
quote unquote, a normal capitalist country, right? That was, that was a refrain one heard a lot in the 1990s that how do we become normal? We become more like the West. That's how we do it. And so there is this kind of subordinate feature to Russian uh, development in the 1990s, which is, okay, well, you know, we need to become more like X or Y country and how do they do things there? Let's copy that. And this is this reflected in foreign policy too, that uh, I mean, one of my favorite details I came across while researching the book is that in uh, 1992, uh, Richard Nixon is on a visit to Moscow and he asks the Russian foreign minister at that point, Andrei Kozirev, uh, what are Russia's particular interests? And Kozirev doesn't know. And he asks Nixon, maybe you could give me some ideas, right? And so, I mean, this is just <laughs> a mind-boggling moment where the foreign minister of a large nuclear-armed state doesn't know what that state's interests are. Hadn't even really occurred to him. It hadn't occurred to him. Maybe he was being polite, I don't know. But but fundamentally, I think the Russian foreign policy establishment, that wasn't an uncommon view, that, the, that Russia at that point didn't have interests that were separate from and certainly no interests that were antagonistic to the West inherently. And so the, the 1990s are this journey, if you like, where the Russians think, well, we don't have interests antagonistic to the West. Let's just join with them. Why not expand NATO to include us? Why don't we do this? And then there's a series of uh, incidents or moments of realization where they think, oh, no, hang on. We do have opposed interests on X or Y question, but still we can get over those and be integrated with them or ally with them. That's not, you know, there are hiccups over Kosovo, for example, or or Bosnia even, you know, a number of different crises. But in the Russian elite, these are not seen as fundamentally disruptive of that vision, right? They, they're, they're bumps along the road. Um, and, you know, NATO expansion is the is a major alarm bell for them. But even to begin with, NATO expansion is not obviously going to exclude Russia. That's one of the things that happens in the mid-90s when, uh, I guess, Clinton sells this initiative to Yeltsin as uh, the so-called uh, Partnership for Peace, where it's like a parallel track to NATO expansion, where on the one hand, you let in the East European states to NATO, but you also offer Russia this thing called Partnership for Peace. And you can see that the Russians think this is a good idea because maybe one will lead to the other, and, it's, and it certainly doesn't exclude the other, they think. But over time, it becomes clear that, that, that really the US has no intention of incorporating Russia into NATO. Uh, and that NATO expansion is very much designed to take advantage of this moment of Russian weakness to expand as far as possible and to not leave that strategic space empty. And also, it should be said, East European elites, you know, in these new post-communist governments, a lot of them are very keen on this, on NATO expansion. So this is not purely driven by the US. This is also coming from their side. And so NATO expansion is is really the thing that reveals to Russia that, oh, hang on, our interests are fundamentally opposed on this question, and they're not going to let us into their security architecture. We're not going to be admitted into NATO. In what sense, then, can we still be part of a common world with the West? In what sense are we really allies or you know, collaborating? And maybe we can't do that. And so when Putin comes to power, there's this kind of rebalancing in all kinds of areas that we've already talked about economically, but also in terms of foreign policy, he begins to assert Russia's interests somewhat separately from those of the West, right? Or, you know, drawing lines. And again, he's in a position where the Russian state has more money and can do this a bit more. Um, in the West, this is initially received as, you know, again, ah, oh, this KGB man is coming and, you know, wants to restore the Soviet Union. But I think if you look back at a lot of Putin's statements, it's quite interesting that there is a pro-Western motif buried in there. 
But alongside it, there is a lot of resentment that this pro-Western vision is not shared by the West itself, right? So a lot of Putin's outbursts at these summits, I mean, very famously uh, one in 2007, there's a lot of frustration actually being acted out there. So a lot of these uh, flare-ups with the West are born of a frustration that this relationship is not developing how it should. It's not yet an antagonism, but what starts to emerge is actually, yeah, these interests are fundamentally opposed and there's going to be a clash. But of course, given the huge imbalance of power between Russia and the West, that clash is only going to go one way, right? Uh, NATO expansion is not going to stop. EU expansion is not going to stop. What is Russia going to do about it? And so in the book, I trace this sort of narrative arc going from the 90s all the way through to the Ukraine crisis. And I see the Ukraine crisis not as some sudden outburst of, you know, Russian aggression on its doorstep, uh, nor as just a sudden incoherent uh, U.S. move to, you know, seize control of an area or draw an area close to Russia into its orbit. But it's actually part of a longer programmatic project of expanding U.S. and Western power uh, into a vacuum left by Russia, uh, that Russia is powerless to do anything about, really. Uh, and I, so I think the, a lot of the, the dynamics that have played out since the Ukraine crisis 2013 and the annexation of Crimea in 2014, a lot of them are really reflections of this fundamental imbalance of power that, that one of the reasons Russia's actions are so uh, drastic, uh, there's so much you know, readiness to deploy force, it's because they don't have anything else. They really like the, the the means at their disposal are much cruder than the power that the EU, the US and other European states have. The actual improvisational nature of Russian foreign policy is almost precisely the opposite of the conventional caricature of Putin as this evil genius working on a complex, long game, 12 dimensional chess stratagem yeah i mean i think that that view obviously caters to certain people's like fantastical ideas of him as this puppet master but i think it's just totally wrong i think i think the ukraine i mean once you bear in mind the power imbalance between the two sides here the ukraine crisis and russia's responses to it make sense much more as a series of just desperate improvisations like what can we do to stop the west winning this one and the answer is nothing like, you know, for example, when the EU offered uh, the Yanukovych government this uh, deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. which In, U- in Ukraine. In Ukraine, yes. Uh, and the, the, the Ukrainian government at that point, uh, Yanukovych was widely seen as being more pro-Russian than anything else, but he was going to sign the agreement. At that point, Russia steps in with an offer of, you know, a $15 billion loan and some, you know, gas discounts. But it's not a great offer. Nonetheless, Yanukovych performs a U-turn, and that's what sparks the the Maidan protests initially in late 2013. But what's interesting there is that Yanukovych, you know, who knows why he actually performed that U-turn on the policy? I think there are other reasons behind that. But what Russia had to offer Ukraine instead of what the EU was offering was really not very good. So the economic part of Russia's uh, attempt to influence the states around it is really not very strong. And at that point, you know, it tries to use political leverage to keep Yanukovych in power for a transitional period. That doesn't work. Uh, He is chased from power by, uh, you know, a large popular insurrection. And so the means Russia has at its disposal are, you know, it has, you know, its armed forces, it has troops it can send in. And the annexation of Crimea, I think, is a very, very drastic measure, clearly. 
that Russia undertakes. I think, you know, as a kind of way of saying to the West, look, do you want to go to war over this? And do you want to have a state in NATO that is fragmented and in pieces? You can't admit a member of NATO that has an ongoing internal conflict, except Turkey, I guess. But, um, you know, a lot of these are spoilers, really. And that that's Russia's role. So it's not, you know... It's like a replication it's not, of the dynamic in Georgia in, was that 2000 yeah. and... Right, 2008. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's the same dynamic. Um, and they're trying to send the same message. And, you know, it's not being heard because the West doesn't really have to listen to that. I mean, you, I should go back, actually, because you mentioned Libya, which I think is a key moment in this whole process, because one of the consistent Russian complaints is of broken promises and double standards and so on and so forth. But Libya, the, this really is a concrete example of that. I mean, at the time in 2011, Medvedev was in power. And he voted to authorize the no-fly zones in Libya on supposedly humanitarian grounds, but he did it on condition that this would not be followed by regime change, which it duly was. Uh, and, you know, Gaddafi immediately out of power and you see the Libyan state collapse. Uh, I mean, it's a total disaster. And so the Russians are not only in the position of saying, look, we told you so, but also that was not the deal, Right. They fundamentally still believe that you can make a deal with the West that will be honored, and they feel like in Libya they got screwed. And they also feel this about Ukraine, right? That they thought, you know, whenever it was the 21st of February, we had a deal to keep Yanukovych in power for six months until new elections are held, and then the next day he's gone. And I think because of the model of imitation democracy and what it produces among Russian leaders, they don't really believe that a popular insurrection could get someone out of power, they think it had to have been told to do that by someone else. So they think, well, obviously what happened was, I don't know, like Hillary Clinton called up the protesters and said, go and get him out of the, the presidential palace, right? So, so there is this sort of, you know, long burning resentment of what they see as Western betrayals, if you like. But I think, and it's not that I think, you know, one has to pay attention to their emotions in some like therapeutic sense, uh, but it's more the, that there is a failure to recognize both by the Russians actually and the West that the, this fundamental imbalance of power just drives all of the calculations everywhere, you know, on all sides. And until that dynamic changes, and I, which I don't see any reason why it would anytime soon, but until that changes, we're going to see a lot more clashes of this kind because Russia does have interests that are fundamentally opposed to those of the West at the moment. So you would need a reorientation in the strategy of the West, or you would need Russia to just fundamentally give up on having its own interests, right? I mean, one of the questions I, I sort of occasionally like to put to people is, what would a Russian foreign policy that was not subservient to the West look like? Leaving aside Putin, leaving aside the imitation democratic regime, actually, like if you had a Russian Democrat who was popularly elected, who was not a product of this Putin-led system, uh, if you had that kind of transformative event happen tomorrow, right? If you had a Russian Maidan, for example, and you produced a very different kind of leader, what would that leader's foreign policy look like? Yeah, if the West won't cooperate with 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 Russia, then what what other possible outcome is there than Russia pursuing an independent foreign policy? Right. I mean, I, I mean, another trick I like to do is you know every time the U.S. press uses the word. Russian plot, I like to substitute the word plot for foreign policy and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> because a lot of these things, it's just, you know, if anyone else was doing it, this would be rational foreign policy, right? I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be moral. I wouldn't approve of it personally. It's not that it's, you know, clean or above board, but it's what states do. And so I think underneath all of this actually is something much deeper in, certainly in the US, and it's also true in Britain, uh, maybe less true in uh, parts of Europe. But there is a fundamental, I think, unwillingness to see Russia as a legitimate player on the world stage. And I think this comes out of, I think, I personally think this goes back to 1917, right? That that the Bolshevik revolution kind of punches a hole in the world system. And so the Russian state that then becomes the Soviet state, it's occupying a sixth of the world's land surface, but it's not a legitimate player on the world stage. You can have detente, but detente is not the same as full recognition of its independent interests. And I think post-Soviet Russia for a time enjoyed that status, but only as long as Yeltsin was in power and it was subservient to Western interests. And the problem really becomes uh, when Putin arrives, the Russian state recovers, the Russian state finds its way to its own independent interests, and those are not compatible with those of the West. And so at that point, you have this, this real uh, incompatibility, if you like, between these uh, the West and Russia. And at that point, the delegitimization of Russia as a player on the world stage sets in. I mean, it's very striking to me that the the level of criticism and vitriol directed at Russia, you know, for things that, again, this is not to legitimate anything that the Russian state does. And I'm very critical of a lot of their internal and external policies, I should say, having, you know, been a critic of the Chechen war since, the, you know, the first war. But it's it's very striking the level of criticism and the level of venom directed at Russia for things that are on a par with what Saudi Arabia does to its own dissidents every day. Right, but that's not part of the framework here because the framework is that Russia is fundamentally illegitimate and fundamentally dangerous to Western interests. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org.
You write, quote, NATO expansion was to some extent an insurance policy against an outcome that, ironically, the expansion would ultimately help to create. The return to the world stage of an independent Russia, with interests distinct from those of the West. My question is, does this mean that Western policy has backfired, or does the answer to that depend on how you define Western interests? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly there's a cynical or, if you like, realist assumption that, you know, Russia in the 1990s was in this weakened state, but the assumption must be that it will one day recover, at which point we will be dealing with a large nuclear-armed, not necessarily friendly power, and therefore we need to expand NATO as close as we can to its borders and defend ourselves from it, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there is that view that, yeah, the Rush- that, that the West is getting what it assumed would happen in Russia, in which case, why don't they like it, right? The other view would be that there was this assumption of a kind of global Pax Americana in which Russia would just accept its subordinate role. And why is it not doing that? The answer is because of uh, Soviet uh, you know, atavism or nostalgia, and they need to just get rid of that imperial nostalgia and accept their place in a US-led, a US-defined world. And I think, to be honest, both of those views obtained within the US foreign policy establishment during the 90s, and you can see that reflected in different positions on NATO expansion at the time. I think what's interesting about both of those stances, though, is that they I mean, neither of them accord Russia a sort of positive, constructive role, right? Either they're subordinate or they're hostile. And and subordinate in a very different way from, let's say, a typical small EU country would be subordinate and excluded and humiliated, like like on the inside in terms of its subordination, but on the outside in terms of being taken into consideration, like an utterly untenable position. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, there are very few states that would be willing to accept that kind of role, especially ones the size of Russia and do have have the historical experience they do. So it's not surprising that that role was, was ultimately rejected or ultimately not possible. So I think this is one of the other things that I, I like to think about when, when we're talking about the book and talking about the, the, the trajectory of US-Russia relations over the past sort of 20, 30 years is what would an acceptable outcome for the West have looked like if they don't like this one? Because to some extent, the West is getting what it wanted, or rather getting back the product of what it wanted, if you like. And I think there is the the underlying thing within Western policy is, is that there is no role for Russia within that, no positive role. And so I think that is something that, that I think there's insufficient reflection on in the Western, certainly in the Western media and certainly in the Western foreign policy establishment. And this is, by the way, not to say that Russia would gladly accept such a positive role if the US were to come up with one. But a, a non-subordinate role as a peer within the global system is what the Russians have been asking for since the 1990s, and they definitely haven't got it. And an irony here is that Russia's support for Trump, however ineffectual, showed that Putin is on some level still hoping for precisely what post-Soviet Russia has always wanted, which is a rapprochement with the West. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things, I mean, I, I, I've, I wrote in the book that that Russian dream of integration or alliance with the West is basically dead. But maybe I'm actually wrong about that. And the whole Trump connection is is proof, as you say, that there is still this desire for connection. I mean, I 
I tend to think that Putin did not think Trump would win and that the Russian campaign, uh, the Russian attempt to meddle in the US elections such as it was, was more an, oh, a warning shot to Hillary. I think they assumed Hillary would win like everyone else did. Uh, and when it didn't happen, they were pretty shocked. Um, but I think they, because they they fundamentally see Hillary Clinton and her foreign policy advisors and her whole trajectory as hostile to Russia. And so they thought, well, let's, you know, tell her we're not going to take it lying down. And I think that was the function of their support against such as it was for the Trump campaign. And so they were just just as shocked as everyone else when he won. And at that point, they initially thought, oh, great. Well, we have an in with the new president. Let's see how this works. Um, and they've been obviously, you know, taken aback by what a disaster it's been. And the whole climate of uh, Russiagate in the U.S. has obviously contributed to a, a harshening of U.S. policy towards Russia rather than the reverse. So it's actually been phenomenally counterproductive from Russia's point of view, the, the Trump connection. Um, but it does, you know, on the other hand, it does show that as far as Russia is concerned, the U.S. is the is for good and ill the prime foreign policy relationship they need to work on and they need to, you know, improve. And that, that does bespeak a kind of, uh, not necessarily pro-Western orientation, but a uh, just an orientation towards the West, again, positive or negative. And I think that, and again, that's not an irrational calculation, right? The US is the world's dominant superpower. That is the relationship that is going to decide your place in the world, uh, whichever country you are. Unfortunately, that is currently how it is. It's now a basic presumption in the U.S. and elsewhere, that Russia is definitively a hostile power. You hear that all the time in Russiagate discussions, and even that we've entered a new Cold War, as you mentioned earlier. But of course, no legislative body ever debated or declared this war, not that that ever stops things in the U.S. But, right. but my question is, to what degree can the repeated assertion of the conf this conflict's existence, this new Cold War's existence, make it a reality yeah i think i mean there is a degree to which you know a cold war is a state of mind uh, and if enough people on both sides are in that state of mind and making decisions on that basis then then it is a reality but on the other hand i guess it depends what you mean by cold war and whether this is actually i think uh, i mean i personally think this is not a new cold war i think this is just a direct clash of interests between russia and the US and its allies. Uh, and this can all be explained by a much more ordinary set of incompatibilities of interests. And I think the Cold War was, as we were saying earlier, much broader, more systemic clash. It was global, right? It involved proxy battles in, you know, across Central Africa, like Mozambique and Angola, and wherever you like, like, this was a, a global phenomenon. And I mean, it was global, which meant that a lot of other countries uh, and peoples had a had a direct stake in this, and I think the U.S. Russia clash, and uh, the U.K. is involved in this to, to a large degree as well. But I mean, I think the number of states that have no stake in this whatsoever is huge. I mean, it's the majority of the world's nation states. I think have no stake in the U.S. Russia clash, and that's just not. I mean, unless it becomes a global nuclear war, then obviously, yes, we do all have a stake in that. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I know. 
But up until that point, like, in what way does this affect Ghana, right? In no way at all. Uh, or maybe it does, but I really don't think so. Um, so there is a sense in which I think this recourse to the Cold War rhetoric is is an effort mainly by people on the U.S. side, I think, to to kind of, you know, gin themselves up to supply ideological legitimation and energy for a clash that just doesn't have that weight, that doesn't require any of that. So it's, it feels very, very artificial to me. I mean, the other side of this is that in Russia, it, the, the, a lot of the Russiagate stuff is responded to with this sense of bafflement, that they really don't understand the obsession. I mean, I was actually in Russia last summer for research, and it was... Um, I think one of the most surprising things about this was that I could be wrong, but I think it's unusual f to be in a country where that country is discussed obsessively in the news in the US much more than the other way around. I just think historically that's just incredibly unusual that day to day you could go about your life in Russia and no one would be talking about Mueller or Russiagate or anything else. Whereas obviously in the US, the news agenda is driven to some extent by coverage of Russia and what it's up to and its plots and its involvement in US politics and are they hacking the voting machines in Florida, et cetera, et cetera. And like the level of hysteria around this is is just not present in Russia. Um, it's just well, Yeah, which is a reversal there. of the typical imperial world order dynamic when everyone thinks about the US and we don't think about anyone else. Yeah, right. It's that dynamic is just totally flipped in this case. And I think... To some extent, this is a, a media phenomenon in the US. I think this is an obsession of like journalists and reporters. But if you go outside that group of people, and obviously policymakers too, but if you go outside that narrow circle of people, I'd, I'd be genuinely curious to know how many people outside of that circle in the US population at large are really concerned with this day to day. I'd be astonished if it was more than a small fraction of people. Yeah, and I mean, even to, to Democratic politicians' credits, it really has been more the media driving certain narratives they a lot of democratic politicians even very mainstream ones seem very aware that they need to campaign on actual issues maybe not in the way i'd like them to but but not on just you know russian interference they i i think there's an acknowledgement e even on the right of the party that that's not going to turn out many voters yeah well one would hope i mean you know it's it's what's well, taken nearly 3 years for a bit of common sense but uh but i think one of the realizations probably is that it's been a strategic disaster for the Democratic Party. I mean, whatever wing of the party you're talking about, uh, this sort of single-minded kind of focus on, you know, how Russia put Trump there, uh, and this will be the tool we can use to lever him out. You know, I think that was always a mistaken strategy, always a disaster, always politically very negative in its effects, and always premised on a kind of denial of all of the things that actually led to Trump's victory in the first place. Uh, and I think more importantly, you know, it was very immediate, right, the recourse to the kind of Trump-Russia story after 2016 as a kind of shock response, right, a sort of trauma of defeat on a lot of the part of uh, a lot of Democrats. Um, but the, the problem with that strategy throughout is that politically nothing constructive comes of it, right? There's, there's no building of any kind of electoral political coalition, again, of whatever politics you know it doesn't even have to be progressive right but there's no way that any positive political result would come of it um and so that to me is is why all along it has been a deep deep mistake for the democrats and so and again there have been people on the progressive wing of the party and obviously many people further left of the democrats who've been saying this all along so i'm not saying anything new here 
the the kind of realization of of how mistaken this strategy has been will hopefully divert attention to other issues which require more urgent attention and i think that may the question really is whether that switch in focus is reflected in any kind of change in foreign policy or whether the damage done by Russiagate in that sphere the all of the 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 dynamics that have been set in motion all of the assumptions that have now you know scriptural among so much of the the political mainstream in the US whether that is now baked in to the US system um and that's that's a very troubling question i think i mean for example the sanctions on russia are now part of congressional legislation that was not the case before right so you know any incoming president previously could have amended the sanctions that were in place uh that uh, had been put there by obama and that, that's not the case that's going to require congressional majority right and and who is going to be the u.s politician who says you know tell you what this is not a constructive stance so i think that's the the russiagate hysteria will leave its mark on u.s russia relations for a very long time even after all of the factors uh, that that set it in play have gone and even hopefully after trump is gone i think that legacy will linger unfortunately and i, I don't quite see what the paths are to any kind of diminishing of tensions especially if as we've already discussed the fundamental impulses of western policy in eastern europe and eurasia continue to be the same I want to dedicate the the final portion of this interview to the Russian opposition, which you write a lot about. You argue it has obviously been hamstrung by repression, but also by a division between the political opposition on the one hand and the social and economic opposition on the other. Lay out these two strands of opposition politics and why they consistently fail to converge. Is it because they are not only different, but also really fundamentally at odds? Yeah, I identify these two strands. I mean, it's obviously a very schematic division, but it's in a way it's between, I would say, a broadly liberal opposition focused on political goals initially, right? So, and this, uh, the the kind of, the, the opposition to Putin that was previously in the parliament in the early 2000s and then was no longer in the parliament, they didn't past the the voting threshold uh so they organized street demonstrations a lot of this was led by uh free market liberals of one stripe or another who were opposed to putin on you know uh anti-authoritarian grounds but also on the you know anti-statist grounds and so on and so forth and this is people like uh gary kasparov among others um so that liberal party opposition uh has been there since you know the mid-2000s say and it was joined by a range of kind of public personalities during the protests against electoral fraud and against Putin's return to the presidency in 2011 and 2012. And and that wing of the opposition, uh, the demand has always been for, you know, a more democratic system uh, and for clean elections. Like that was actually uh, the slogan under which a lot of different groups converged in 2011, 2012 was for clean elections, right? Which was around and, the time of... Putin's sort of stage-managed handing of the presidency to Medvedev? Actually, in the, it was around the time when he was coming back to the presidency. Oh, okay, it was 2011. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Thinking kind of systemically, right, the demand for clean elections is a demand for the system as it is to function better, right, to live up to its promises, to be substantively what it is in form, right? 
and I think that's that's one wing of the opposition, and that was very strong, and it had a lot of public resonance, and it's it was a very clear demand, and so that gathered a lot of traction, especially in like 2011, 2012. And don't forget, also, this comes on the heels of the Arab Spring and Occupy, so there's a lot of global legitimation of kind of street protests in favor of a more kind of democratic opening. Um, but then, on the other hand, identify a kind of more diffuse set of social movements that have been happening in Russia, again, since the mid-2000s. But these take very different forms, right? These are very localized. They're often mobilized around particular issues. So, for example, there are ecological movements. There are movements against the privatization of housing and communal services. There are movements against austerity and education and healthcare. I mean, more recently, that's been the trend. Uh, and uh, last summer, there was a movement against uh, the raising of the pension age. So there is a kind of different, that's what I call the social opposition, right? That there is a kind of spread of very fragmentary, very small, very diffuse social movements um, that is opposed to the consequences of the current model. And most of the time, these movements operate separately, but they converge at key moments. And one of the reasons that the 2011-12 protests were so strong was that you had a convergence both of the political opposition that we talked about, but also all of these different social movements temporarily converged with the political opposition too. And so one of the features of those rallies was that they were ideologically just an amazing kind of salad bar of stuff, right? You had, you know, liberals, you had TV personas of various kinds, and you had like right-wing nationalists, and you had insane anti-immigrant people, and they were all at the same demonstrations, against Putin, right? It was a convenient, clear rallying cry. But obviously, those are very different uh, tendencies politically, and they go in very different directions. Like, what kind of Russia do you want if you don't want Putin? The, the answers are not going to be remotely similar. And so one of the the, the fault lines within the opposition is, is between the political opposition uh, and the social opposition, as I said, but also within each of those categories, if you like, there are a lot of divergences. One of the figures who obviously is talked about a great deal uh, in the West and in Russia and who I spend a bit of time on in the book is the anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny. You write, I want to quote from your book on that, you, you write, Navalny's mixture of chauvinism and entrepreneurial frustration with the way Russia is governed makes him a peculiar synthesis of post-Soviet trends. An Orthodox Christian, he professes his love for the fatherland while admiring the corporate governance of Western blue chip companies. Yeah, that's him. I mean, he's he's a very effective political operator. He has a very good kind of media strategy, and he has a quite a simple and clear and principled objection to corruption. Right? That that's you know, and and he sees the corruption as emanating from this regime. I mean, one of the things I, I talk about in the book is his you know fusion of you know chauvinism with this idea that the system as it is is corrupt. Right. But behind all of this lies an idea that there is a clean version of the system that would work, that we just need to get rid of these crooked bureaucrats and Putin and co. And this particular elite. And the problem isn't that they're billionaires, but that the wrong people are billionaires. Right. And there's nothing wrong with billionaires per se. It's just these guys are hogging power and they're doing it in a crooked way, whereas there is a clean capitalism waiting for us on the other side of some political transformation. Right. So, Which is the Western... That's the Western analysis and often as well. Yeah. And this is, I mean, uh, Navalny's analysis is fully compatible with that. And I think that's why he's picked up on so much in the Western press and not so much his kind of chauvinist statements. 
but again, his stance is really that, uh, you know, the political system is dysfunctional. We need to change it and then we can run a perfectly good, you know, quote unquote, normal country with a normal capitalism like everyone else has. Um, and I think, you know, from what we've been talking about before, obviously people will understand that I think that that's a very limited analysis. I mean, one of the interesting thing that's happened, one of the interesting things that's happened over the past couple of years is that Navalny himself has modified his message somewhat, that he's tried to uh, take on much more of the kind of social agenda of the movements I've been talking about. And he's, he's, he's tilted somewhat away from the very clearly neoliberal policies that he was talking about like three or four years ago. Uh, and there's much more emphasis on the social functions of the state on, you know, the provision of welfare. He came out against the raising of the pension age, which he had been in favor of three years before. So, you know, there's a, there's a shifting of stance here, which I think is on his part, at least I read that as a recognition of that split I was talking about between the political movements and the social ones that he understands uh, that there is a gap between those two things and that anyone who wants to lead an alternative movement in Russia is going to have to bridge that gap. And whether he is able to do it is one question. Whether he's the right person to do it or a good person to do it is, I mean, I think not, but that's another debate. But that's a, that's a whole complex of problems that the Russian opposition faces. And to be fair to them, you know, it's not like opposition movements anywhere else are having such an easy time working out. <laughs> that kind of program either. So, and they're facing very difficult circumstances. So I, I should also say that I'm not, this is not a criticism of, of, of the Russian opposition as somehow failing where anyone else is succeeding. It's a, it's an analytical premise of mine, not a, not a, a, a critique per se. I want to ask more about that in a second, but first, how do Navalny's neoliberalism and nativism relate to one another? And what does that all reveal about the politics of anti-corruption politics as like a framework for politics, something that I've been thinking a lot about, you know, vis-a-vis Brazil, for example. Yeah, no, that's a really good parallel to draw because it does... Or Italy. Or Italy, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, but this is uh, uh, true in a lot of places where the, the, uh, the corruption can turn into a critique of any kind of role for the state in the economy at all, right? The, it does tally very well with a kind of neoliberal emphasis on the the corrupting effect of the state in 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 the economy and that actually what is needed is a retreat of the state in order to let business do what it does best right that that's a kind of assumption that's, that's there in all of Navalny's statements and policies that if only the state would get out of the way then everything would be fine right and i think the the nativism doesn't totally uh square or tally with that but it does play to a kind of uh, combined combination of audiences uh, in Russia, that there is a kind of, I mean, one of the, the features of the Russian state at present is a federation on paper. In practice, it's very centralized. But one of the features of this is that a lot of the more peripheral, ethnically non-Russian regions are not uh, net contributors to the budget. So Tatarstan, say. Tatarstan, uh, Tatarstan, actually not sure uh, because they have a lot of oil, but the North Caucasus above ah, all. Yeah. Uh, the North Caucasus is being uh, subsidized by the federal state. That's very clear. They have very high unemployment. Uh, they have, you know, long running uh, 
Islamist insurgencies in different parts of the North Caucasus. And of course, uh, they had a, a separatist state in Chechnya uh, from the early 1990s through to the early 2000s that is now being governed by a, a dictator put there by Putin to suppress his own countrymen. One of the motifs of right-wing nationalist protest in Russia for the past sort of 10 years or more has been stop feeding the Caucasus, right? Wow. Uh, and on the surface of this, this is uh, del sort of very paradoxical because these are the people who would precisely support fighting counterinsurgencies to maintain these countries as part of Russia. But at the same time, they don't want to subsidize them from the federal budget. So at which point, well, which is it? Do you, I mean, because maintaining them within the federation does require large federal subsidies. These are very poor regions uh, that don't, that thanks to, partly thanks to all of these wars, don't have the economic infrastructure they need to be self-sufficient. So they are going to depend on the federal budget so either cut them loose or accept that that's how federalism works, right? Navalny hasn't, I think, specifically endorsed the slogan, stop feeding the Caucasus, but he has made a number of remarks about the need to rebalance the federal compact, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very clear that from his other statements about sort of immigrants that that, that has a kind of nativist bent, as, as, as you said. So what's curious about Navalny is that in the West, he's seen as this sort of Democrat and uh, anti-corruption campaigner and against the crookedness of Putin. And he's, you know, a liberal, but actually on the national question, it's Putin and the current system that are relatively speaking more liberal. Because if you look at the statements that Russian government officials make on these questions, they're actually, you know, in favor of Russia's continued existence as a multi-ethnic federal state. They don't make any statements that are overtly Russian chauvinist, or at least not to the detriment of any of the other peoples living within Russia. Uh, they will make statements about Russia's great national mission and so on that can be read as sort of patriotic and nationalist, but they don't do it uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that diminishes deliberately uh, the role of other peoples, right? So there's a sense in which their position on the national and ethnic questions in Russia is much more balanced than Navalny's. So the, the concern there would be the degree to which the arrival of a figure like Navalny in power, who has a kind of combination of a sort of neoliberal plus nationalist agenda, like that might actually be very destabilizing for a multi-ethnic country like Russia with real economic problems that it has that, you know, if a Navalny like president were to come to power and rearrange the federal compact financially and adopt a much more nativist kind of rhetoric and at the same time carry out some kind of neoliberal restructuring, then what you're looking at is actually like a, a much more nationalistic version of Yeltsin again. Do you know what I mean? It could be very, very uh, chaotic. Um, so the question is whether Navalny actually would carry out any of that program if he came to power. And, you know, who knows? I mean, that prospect is uh, currently still very distant. You write about the important question, you've alluded to this a little already, of how the Russian left approaches Navalny. On the one hand, the left is weak and not only weak, but vulnerable to repression. And so they can't really afford to spurn relatively powerful allies in the opposition. On the other hand, Navalny's views are bad, really bad often. Well, yeah. What is the current state of the left and how, how are they approaching this dilemma of how to relate to Navalny? Yeah, I mean, the left in Russia is, is certainly it's very small. I mean, it's very fragmented also, as 
everywhere uh, between you know different organizations, different groups. So organizationally speaking, you know there aren't exactly like thriving left parties that would be able to contest a lot of parliamentary seats or anything like that. Um, I mean, there have been people who've contested, you know, uh, municipal seats, that kind of thing, and uh, got involved in kind of running for local government, which I think some people see as the next sort of hopeful area where they can work. So I would, I guess I would draw a distinction maybe between the left's very, very small organizational capacities as constituted parties. But on the other hand, I think there is a much larger body of public opinion uh, and support for left ideas within other organizations than is often allowed. Um, I mean, for example, within the trade union movement, within even within some of the official parties that are in the parliament and are currently under Kremlin control. Again, one of the interesting examples of this was last summer, the protests against the raising of the pension age. This was something that almost 90% of Russian society was against the government on this question, right? They were against the raising of the pension age and there were very large uh, rallies by Russian standards across the country and they were organized by all of the major parties and all of the major trade unions and Navalny's people and everyone organized some kind of demonstration against this. And I think not all of that was cynical or fake. I think there was a genuine idea that you know the state should be providing pensions to people, especially if the retirement age was going to be beyond life expectancy, right? That's just a horrendous, immoral disaster. I mean, that's a very minimal example, but I think there would be a constituency for a lot of the left's social welfare agenda in Russia. And again, this goes back to what we were saying about Navalny and how he has tacked somewhat left over the last you know, year and a half or so and recognize that there is this pool of support for a more socially welfareist type of politics in Russia and that a, a straight neoliberal agenda is going to have very limited, not just electoral success, but also a broader appeal in the population as a whole. So, I, I mean, on the one hand, the, the immediate prospects for the left in Russia are not very good because they're facing a very repressive system and they're very small and weak, more so than in a lot of other countries. Um, but on the other hand, there is, I think, there are much better possibilities for them in terms of gaining support for their program in the population at large. So I sort of tack between a, a feeling of uh, uh, despair and optimism on that question. You argue that the opposite of conventional wisdom might be true in terms of the Soviet legacy in the sense that once the economic and political subsidies of the Soviet era are gone – people will only have present-day Russia as a point of reference. And that, you argue, could spell trouble for the current regime. And so my last question is a big, speculative, and forward-looking one. To what degree do you think does the regime have the tools to continue to provisionally resolve all of the contradictions we've been discussing? Oof, yeah, that's a tough one. I think... The regime as it currently stands is not geared to permanently resolve the contradictions it faces. I think it's re it really actually is more likely to generate contradictions for itself than to solve them as time goes on. I think partly that's a, an effect of a kind of hardening of the system over time, and partly because 
one of the consequences of this imitation democratic system in radically constraining what's possible within politics, within representative politics in the country, let's say. It makes it very difficult for those running the country to have a, a good understanding of what the situation is on the ground, right? Uh, they don't have a good, you know, feedback mechanism. And so you you see that, I mean, this is a good example of this is actually the, the pension stuff we were talking about, uh, the protest last summer, because this was an initiative that was floated, you know, by the government just when the World Cup kicked off. There were all these protests that emerged in response. This was not an initiative that was really debated in the parliament, right? The parliament is not the place where you thrash out contending political interests because those are all solidly you know it's tightly controlled by the regime so what the regime has to do in order to find out how big a risk it's taking with this measure is to float the idea and then take a step back and implement it in a slightly modified form and you know as a as a way of doing politics this may i guess be rational but it you can see the problems it generates that this regime doesn't really have a good appreciation of the population's attitudes at large and i think it makes it very vulnerable to crisis and to sudden surges of public opinion that it won't understand where these came from right and so in a kind of paradoxical way this is a regime that has a very solid grip on power but it doesn't have a very solid contact with the population that allows it to resolve crises smoothly and interpret signals in advance and avert crises even right it's constantly having to respond to crises because it can't see them coming because it's not rooted in the population and because you know fundamentally it's not democratic um and so i think the the question really is what kind of crisis ultimately does for this regime right whether it is whether it is a sudden maidan type crisis has happened in ukraine or whether it's a kind of much slower decline that like the one that got rid of the Soviet Union in the end, or you know what form of decline is is this thing slated for, uh, and will Putin still be in charge, or will someone else be in charge? And those kind of time horizons are very hard to predict, and and I I'd sort of be loath to venture you know any kind of time horizon on this, but I think some other kind of rush is waiting on the other side of this particular system, and so I mean that's really the fundamental kind of. Uh, impulse behind my book is is to undo this identification between Putin and Russia, not just because you know I don't like the guy, but but also because this is a system that is governing Russia and that was created at a particular time and has particular consequences. But there are many other possibilities waiting uh, for us on the other side of this, and that you know when that comes, I don't know, but but there are other Russias that are going to be possible. Well, Tony Wood, thank you very much. No, thank you. Tony Wood is the author of Russia Without Putin, Money, Power, and the Myths of the New Cold War, from Verso, and a member of the editorial committee at New Left Review. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the necessary consequence of capitalism was political centralization, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. 
Our managing editor, who I'm thinking of renaming as senior advisor, is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing going strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Thank you.